Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Verley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. Today, we're back in the podcast studio here in 2022. Excited to be back in the studio. And we've got a special guest for everyone today coming to us all the way from Maine. As the, as the saying says, a lot of good things come from Maine. Uh, Michelle Miller. Michelle, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm excited to share my story. Well, we're excited to have you. I know we were just talking a little bit before we hit record. Um, as I, I usually... Uh, not usually, but I always tell our guests, like we connected uh, on social media and I, I always try to find the positives in everything. And I know, you know, social media is a very negative place right now with everything that's going on in the world, but I have found lots of positives in connecting with people, um, helping to raise awareness, bring awareness for this disease that we are all involved in. And hopefully the people listening at home are involved in as well, which is pancreatic cancer. So it's really been a blessing uh, to get to meet people via social media and to have this interaction, but then to bring, be able to bring you on the podcast and see you here because we're doing this on Zoom. Uh, our audience listening can't see that, but uh, it's just really cool and really special. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, to Michelle, to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. And as I said before, um, it's up to you. You can go as far back uh, as you want, and then we'll go from there. That sounds great. Um, and I will, I will say I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in, um, April of 2021, but I'm going to go back a little bit because I think something that's important to know about my story, um, is that I am BRCA2 positive. So I carry the BRCA2 mutation and how I found that out was in 2019, I had breast cancer. And part, I, and that was caught early um, through a mammogram. I didn't feel anything myself, but um, I didn't know a lot about my medical background. Um, I was adopted at birth, so I didn't have any medical history for either side of my biological family. Um, so I was really lucky in a way to have this small um, tumor caught on a, a routine mammogram. And part of the uh, treatment with that was, it was just kind of strongly suggested to go through the genetic testing. So I was open to that. And um, that's when I found out that I did carry the BRCA2 mutation, which definitely changed the way I thought about treating breast cancer. And then also thinking about my health ongoing. Um, the good news is with the breast cancer, I, I did elect to have a double uh, bilateral mastectomy, um, really just to reduce the risk going forward. Um, you know, I think BRCA2 mutation does increase the risk of breast cancer from, I, I think the general population somewhere around 12%, and then the BRCA's are up in the 70s, high 70s, with a high rate of recurrence. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me to think about um, make, making that choice on the, on the, uh, bilateral mastectomy shortly after that, I went ahead and had my, um, ovaries and fallopian tubes removed just to eliminate the risk of, um, ovarian cancer. So in the genetic counseling that helped me make some of these decisions, um, 
we talked about pancreatic cancer because there's an elevated risk, but there really isn't anything you can do to reduce the risk. And even more upsetting to me at the time was to hear there's not a lot of good surveillance for pancreatic cancer. So that always bothered me. That conversation, I think, haunts me a little bit. Um, and it, it certainly did to the point where I'll go up to now 2021. It was Easter weekend and I, um, you know, I, I, I love to eat. <laughs> and I had, uh, we had some pizza and I can usually eat quite a bit of that one night. And I had a couple pieces and I felt really full, like Thanksgiving day full which is a little unusual for me, but I, you know, kind of shrugged it off and that ended up going on throughout the weekend. And by Monday, I had this stomach pain. It was right in the middle of my upper abdomen, right below my rib cage. And that just persisted, I would say for two or three days. And I was having conversations with my, my husband, um, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. Like, I don't know, did I eat something that was bothering me? You dismiss it. And this is the problem, I think, with a lot of people that are fumbling through these symptoms with pancreatic cancer. It's, it's very easy to dismiss it for something else. Um, and you mentioned social media. And I, I um, at the time, and I still continue to be a member of a Facebook group that is for people who have the BRCA mutations and posted something there. And I said, Hey, you know, I've got this stomach pain and I've got a, you know, I've got a scheduled follow-up appointment with my oncologist for breast cancer in like three weeks. Anyway, should I call now or should I just kind of wait this out? And everybody that responded to the post said, call now, you know, don't, don't wait, call now. And my husband was saying the same thing. And I, called. And, um, you know, I think being already under the care of an oncologist tracking back to having breast cancer, things moved pretty quickly at that point. So I was able to get a CT scan within the next two days. And I, again, I'm going to kind of track back to, I think a lot of primary care physicians may talk about diet or say, you know, try this, um, you know, change your diet or try this antacid medication or just kind of take the wait and see approach. So I was fortunate to have that path forward <laughs> kind of paved a little bit. And um, the CT scan showed there was a blockage um, of one of my bile ducts. There was some mass blocking it. Of course, they couldn't tell whether it was benign or malignant. So the next step was an ER CP where they scope and take a sample of the tissue. And that was what revealed that it was pancreatic cancer and um, not a recurrence of breast cancer. They definitely ruled that out right away. It was a, a, a separate new incidence of, of cancer. So um, I will say at that point, <laughs> your world caves in, my world caved in. You hear pancreatic cancer. I think most people have some understanding that the survival rates are just abysmal. Um, when you look at the statistics and I tried not to look, but you know, you have this information, you have it. And I didn't know anything else at that point. I didn't know how far along it was. I didn't know what the treatment looked like. You start thinking about time being a whole different construct. <laughs> um, 
And of course, uh, that period in the diagnostic phase, in my opinion, my experience was the worst of my journey so far to date, because it's very ambiguous. You don't have a lot of answers. You don't know what the future looks like. And you feel this weight of time on you. Um, I would feel this sensation of waking up in the morning and I almost for a split second would forget that I had pancreatic cancer, but then you wake up and I felt like I woke up to a nightmare instead of going to sleep and having a nightmare. I woke up to one literally felt like that, but I, I, this diagnostic process for me, even though it felt like it took forever, it was about a month from the time that I found out I had cancer to when I had my first chemo infusion. And in that period of time, in that month, what happened was I met with my oncologist. I met with um, my oncology surgeon and they were very tightly connected. And what I had more imaging as well. So I had an MRI and um, I had a stent that was placed to deal with the blockage because I had started to get jaundice. And in that testing period, um, what was happening is that they were really trying to figure out what are we dealing with? Am I a candidate for surgery? Which I was, I, I was probably clinically staged one B. They don't put a lot of emphasis on, I guess on that. They really were kind of focused on, can we, can we operate on this? Can you have the Whipple surgery? Um, and it looked like I could, although both my surgeon and my oncologist agreed that based on what my situation was and what the most recent studies were showing is that people do better long-term if you can have some chemo upfront and then have surgery and then finish the chemo and the chemo protocols, 12 rounds. And so I had a great deal of trust in that. Um, so I'll call it science, right? Like, so I think my, the whole way through, I, I had a lot of um, trust in um, the science and expertise of the people that kind of came before me that struggled through this disease and, and, and um, ultimately led to understanding more about it, right? So I'm benefiting from that. So when the decision was made to go first with some chemo, eight rounds of chemo, my surgeon put in my um, port and he also did an exploratory laparoscopy so that he could just visualize and make sure there wasn't anything in my abdominal area that didn't show on imaging. And um, going through that, even that small procedure, it, he, the port's beautiful. Everybody that accesses the port says that looks great. Um, and the confidence in knowing that he took that step to visualize everything else. Um, I think when I got to the point of getting ready for the big surgery for, for the Whipple, I just had so much confidence in him. Um, that helped a lot. So that was a small step in the beginning of just even something as simple as putting my port in that led to, um, making things easier down the road in a way for me. Um, but I did start with chemo, uh, you know, with COVID being a factor, the first um, chemo session I had, and I, and I had full Fearnox, which when my oncologist told me, he uh, said, you'll, you know, we'll start you off with full Fearnox and I'll give you a printout on what that looks like. And um, 
you know, some papers to describe it. I had no clue. I, <laughs> they gave me a bundle of maybe 10 or 12 pages <clears throat> and had all these different names on it. And it didn't occur to me, I guess, that fulferinox meant it's, it's actually three chemos and one helper. So four, four different types of drugs being infused. And it just got a little overwhelming at that point. And of course, people may know <clears throat> that are listening, one of them infuses over 46 hours and you bring it home on a pump and it's kind of dripping into your body over, over that time. But, um, pretty overwhelmed about the thought of going in for chemo in the first session that I had because of COVID, um, they weren't allowing other people into the treatment room. So I, um, you know, found my chair and, uh, you know, they made me at ease immediately. Um, I, cause I had started to get teary before. It's just overwhelming for anyone who's walked into a treatment room. It can be very overwhelming. Um, just because of re realizing how many people are dealing with what you're dealing with or some form of it and all the equipment that's there. And it's, it, it kind of got to me a little bit, but, um, they made me at ease and I'm a very visualized, uh, I like to visualize things to help me. Um, so I started to think about chemo as being, instead of being, um, you know, these poisons <laughs> dripping into me that I just visualize them as different colors of a rainbow, kind of infusing into my body and, and kind of washing away the tumor. And um, for me, that helped because I think it's, it's really uh, an odd feeling to have your body full of these chemicals and you feel awful. A lot of the side effects just make you feel inhuman. And so really continuing to stay positive and focus on what this is doing to help you, <laughs> to help me <clears throat> was really important. And I think that helped a lot. Um, I also really try to take things just one day at a time. And if the day was overwhelming, it was just one, one hour at a time. You know what? I try not to think too far down the road. I think my husband really helped me with that um, mentality as well. Um, so I had my eight rounds of chemo. I will say, you know, it's a two week cycle. And I, the second week, or at least part of that second week, I, I would feel pretty well. And I was determined that I, I didn't want to lose too much weight because I knew that the surgery would be a big weight loss impact for me. And I wanted to stay as healthy as possible. So I walked a lot when I was feeling well, I had, there's a little farm stand nearby that has a bakery in it. And I would just, whatever, I would eat my cravings on that second week and just try to, um, not judge myself on that front, but just try to keep the weight on. So that I would say, you know, was, those first eight rounds of chemo, um, was tough, but I, I was, and I'm not an athlete, but I would kind of think about it as somebody who maybe does triathlons where you've got that first segment of what you're doing and you just focus on that and you get through it. Um, and I did, and I had, um, positive feedback through CT scan midpoint. And then one at the end of that, where the tumor had shrunk and my CA 19, nine, cancer markers were coming down all these things the surgeon wanted to see in order to have the best outcome for the Whipple. So 
I got a little chemo break before the surgery. Um, I went in on October 4th, which was a Monday for the Whipple. Um, and I, I had a lot of faith that my body could heal from this. Having gone through a bilateral mastectomy and having, I have three children of my own. Um, so having gone through childbirth three times, I, I just had a lot of faith in my body to go through something like that and to heal. Um, and I tried to kind of focus on, I don't have to do anything for this surgery, right? Like I go to sleep, everybody else has <laughs> the hard job. And I had a lot of faith in my surgeon. I, I had, um, from what I understand, it went very quickly for a Whipple. I think it was three hours. Um, and they got clear margins on everything. No lymph nodes were um, were involved. So really good outcome from surgery. And I I spent four days after surgery in um, the hospital, and then I came home. So um, I had a really good outcome. Part of that I think has to do with um, j- just I was in pretty you know pretty good shape ahead going, and I didn't have any comp- complications. Sometimes that people might also have going into a major surgery and then I'll get my surgeon, you know, he, he, I didn't have an NG tube. I had two drains. They came out on day three. Um, he, he was just wonderful. Um, can't say enough good things about, about the surgeon that I had. And, you know, living in Maine, um, we're not that far from Boston and there's a lot of really excellent healthcare available. And, um, you know, I think, you know, that was always a consideration. I would have moved anywhere if I felt like I couldn't get the right kind of care and have a good plan um, just to fight this thing. And I just felt so good about the um, combination of my oncologist and my surgeon really coordinating and texting each other about me. And um, they leverage a tumor board where they bring my case to uh, a kind of a round table and they're connected with Dana-Farber. So I I kind of felt like everything looked pretty straightforward with my case. It was, you know, cut and dry. So I didn't necessarily um, feel like I needed to move past what was available kind of in my backyard for good treatment and it, and it worked out for me. So um, about a month after the surgery, I went back in to finish my chemo four more rounds. I will say that was, that was the uphill (laughs) of the whole, um, course of treatment that, that, that was really hard because my body was still recovering from the surgery. Um, and the chemo effects are just cumulative and they really knocked me around. Um, and it's over the holidays and the days are shorter and you're, you know, it's just a little bit different mentally at that point. And the other thing that had happened, one of my daughters, um, had made the um, decision to go ahead and test to see what her status was for BRCA, the BRCA mutation. And she tested positive for BRCA2 as well. And that hit me pretty hard. Um, as a mom, you you don't ever really want to hear uh, something about your kid's health like that because you do everything as a parent to keep your kids safe and healthy, when, you know, as you can. And uh, I've tried to think about it as she's got the the benefit of knowledge uh, at a young age. She's only 24. And um, a lot of changes 
positive changes are happening in the field between breast cancer and pancreatic cancer. And I think that she'll have some different options as she kind of works through that. And um, I have two other daughters. One is starting the process of testing. And then my youngest is a senior in college and it's not on her radar and that's okay. You know, she's got a lot going on, but um, when I finished chemo, I know I'm jumping around. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. That's okay. Finished chemo. I had my, I had the CT scan that showed no evidence of disease. So I was able to ring the bell and I went from that to my scan. And the next day uh, I knew it was a clean scan. And then I think Christmas Eve was the day after that. So it was a really wonderful way, even though I felt pretty sick from the chemo, I had that positive lift of knowing I had come to the end of my treatment. I could focus on regaining my strength. And, you know, I don't really think I'm out of the woods, but, you know, I, I will be under close surveillance, like most everyone else that gets to this point, if, you know, they're lucky with, with treatment, I'll be scanned regularly, but I've just decided that, um, I can't let something that I don't know about the future steal my joy today. I I have today. Um, And that's how I'm going to try to approach everything. I I think scanxiety is a real thing. Um, And I've always approached this. I know, I know what the statistics are, but one is one. And um, I just, I'm going to focus on myself and what, what I need to do to, keep my health in the forefront, um, and try to not put things off, um, that, that, um, if, you know, you think you have time, maybe, maybe not, (laughs) you know, none of us really know, but I think having, um, gone through this in my health, it really brings that more to the forefront. That is a amazing story, Michelle. And, um, I've been taking notes here, so I've got a couple questions. Back to even before breast cancer diagnosis in 19, health-wise, I mean, you said you had three daughters and and that, you know, health-wise, no other issues, not no other cancers, nothing along the way other than childbirth three times. Right. I, I was a pretty, pretty healthy person. <laughs> um, I really didn't have anything major uh, from a health consideration that I had to deal with in my life. Um, you know, of course you have that for me, that big question mark of a lot of people know what might be in their medical history. And I just didn't have, have that information. Yeah. Now going through breast cancer, I mean, you went, so, I mean, in less than two years, you go through two major Mm -hmm. cancer diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Um, you had said, early on, you know, you got to that Easter weekend, you didn't feel well after eating. And I know I have, you've listened to the podcast before, so you know, I have a lot of loaded questions here. So there's a, here's loaded question. Number one, not feeling well at, you know, do you, do you kind of look back and go, you know, let's say that you weren't, um, BRCA and that you just had breast cancer, right? Like, do you think like, 
and, and then where I'm going with this is, is kind of like what you said with your daughters, like knowledge is power, you know, and that's where I feel like this is like the one wild, and I say wild, but I, I say wild because I think it's just wild that we've gotten to this point, which is a, in a good way that with BCRA patients, with the, with genetic mutations that we know, we know so much. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think back, like if it wasn't for the BCR, a, you know, the bracket diagnosis, would you have just like, kind of like, eh, you know, it was pizza. It was just what didn't sit well. I had a, bad toppings, bad cheese, whatever it could have been and just kind of moved on. hundred percent. I think I would have, um, I think the catch would have been, um, I did start to get jaundiced because the, uh, the tumor yeah. was causing that blockage and that I think would have been, but you know, I thought, this has got to be a gallbladder thing yeah. or, you know, you, you want to think it's anything, even though I knew I had the pancreatic cancer risk Yep. and you want it, you want it to be anything other than that. And it, your mind can, can make excuses for a lot of things. And I think when it comes to, like I said, some of the symptoms of pancreatic cancer, they're so easily dismissed for something else. Um, and everybody's lives are busy and you, you know, you just want to, you know, think, well, I'll just change my diet. I, I just ate something that isn't agreeing with me, or maybe I'll try gluten-free or, you know, there's, it's so it's, it could go in so many different directions. Um, and I even, even though I knew I had the risk, I even had those couple of days where I thought, well, to the point where I posted on that, the BRCA group, like, here's what I'm feeling. And it was just that overwhelming response from that group of like, go, go get, go to, to your doctor, get a CT. Um, so that's what really tipped me over the edge. And, um, and I knew I had that risk. So I think it's part of the reason it's part, I think it may be part of the reason why people sometimes get a late, later diagnosis, because I think you can go for a while with dismissing things. And even in hindsight, before that weekend, I had a little, you know, a couple of things like, um, acid reflux a couple of times it was a little weird and like, you know, a couple of things, um, with my stomach in hindsight, then I'm like, wow, you know, anyway, uh, you, you start to wonder how, how far back, what was I really feeling something going on, you know? Yeah. Hindsight's always 2020, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. can, I think we can, in a lot of situations, especially when, when, you know, you know what you know, right. We look back. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just so powerful, you know, and, and this is where, you know, and I I think our community as a whole does an okay job. I say okay, but I, I don't think that the community as a whole, and when I say community, I, I you know, I put us in the in us, i.e. Project Purple, in the same boat as the medical community because we're patient advocates and, and you know med- medicine is a patient advocate that they're, they're advocating for patients and guiding patients through that I, I think the space does a really poor job though um you know of getting the knowledge out to patients and i don't know if that's like by design in some way and, and we've had a lot of in-depth conversations about this uh, with various people at various levels and various organizations and but your story though is kind of a testament to this though right because if you if you empower the patients to have the information then they are they are aware they are consciously aware 
And awareness is huge. Um, that's the game changer in this. And, and you mm-hmm. know, kudos to your team of, of doctors. And naturally, you know, um, I love what you said before, you know, you were really comfortable with your doctors and they, they had a treatment plan. I mean, you said you went from, you know, from, from the first, uh, from the CT scan to treatment, your first treatment was like one month, which is mm-hmm. again in itself, like, I mean, we've had people come on the podcast and, you know, they get misdiagnosed for six months. Mm-hmm. Now, naturally mm-hmm. you, you had a, a clinical history that, you know, warranted, you know, higher surveillance and, and some things that were known, but you know, I think we can get to that for everyone. Everyone should get that quick care, right? And everyone should be able to have that knowledge, um, you know, and so that's the hope. Um, and, you know, but we do have to do a better job as a group here, you know, as as a whole. And I, I again, put ourselves Project Purple in that medical community because I do feel that sometimes we do, we don't, we don't give the patients enough empowerment um, mm-hmm. with the knowledge uh, that that they can self-diagnose, not self-diagnose, because that, that can get a little scary sometimes, but, you know, just give them the knowledge to, to be able to make informed decisions and then ask the right questions. Yes. The old adage, right? If you don't ask, you don't get. I'm sure, you, you know, that's probably, that was another question here, you know, how much advocating did you have to do for yourself mm-hmm through this whole process? Cause I know that comes up often. Yes. I, I think, um, being able to advocate for yourself and of course you need, that's almost step two. I think step one is what you described. You have to have the knowledge and awareness, um, and access, you know, to that information to educate yourself in order to advocate in, in some cases. Um, I think, I think I did a, uh, I think that at times I, I advocated for myself well, um, I, when I was in that really murky period in the diagnosis and testing, I made a list. <laughs> I made a list of things that were my priorities. So these are, these are the things that if you need to get right down to it in, in my life, this is what I want some of this every day in my life. And it was as simple as drink enough water <laughs> all the way to, I want, I want deeper, more intimate relationships with my family. Um, and then I would say one of the things is I want to learn something every day. And for me, that was, I, I wanted to learn everything I could about what was going on with pancreatic cancer and BRCA and treatment. And I, what could I learn that would help me um, be part of the team with my doctors um, so that I could ask the right questions so that I could be prepared to understand what some of the side effects might be of chemo you know, so that I could advocate for myself while I'm feeling this, like, what can we do about, you know, this stomach that I'm having or what could be causing that? Like, um, so advocating, you know, you're not a, a patient is not a victim to the system necessarily. You have, you, I, for me, I felt like I need to be a part of this. I'm now on the team. (laughs) Um, and the team revolves around me. Um, and I was fortunate because I would say I never had to advocate around like being, having, um, my care team be responsive. They were wonderful. Um, I never had to advocate for the, the window seat at the treatment room. You know, sometimes they'd give it to me because 
I think I got the window seat on the, that last chemo I had before surgery. Um, and then when I came back after all the nurses and few, you know, the oncology nurses were saying, we followed your chart. We're so happy to have you back. Your surgery was great. Um, so I had, a, I didn't feel like I had a lot of instances where I had to really push to advocate, to get care that a standard of care, um, I had, I did have some problems in the hospital. Um, it was overcrowded with some of the COVID pressures and I had a roommate that was, the situation wasn't, really, really wasn't good. And I feel like in hindsight, could we have advocated a little bit more? Um, but um, it was such a short stay overall, um, that it's fine. But, you know, I think, uh, that was a one, one situation we could have maybe pushed a little bit more, but uh, overall, I think if you um, if you have the knowledge um, and seek seek the knowledge, like kind of seek out what do you need to know to help understand and and be part of that treatment plan, it it helps. And maybe that in and of itself is is kind of a kind of advocacy. But um, that's my my approach was I'm again like I said I'm, I'm on the team. What can I do to to be involved and to help with this? It's powerful stuff. Another question here um, that I wrote down early on when you were describing kind of your history here. Do you think, and again, this is a loaded question, having this be your second cancer, how that prepared you for this second diagnosis? And, and really, I mean, yeah. you had a pretty, I mean, you know, you said the Whipple, you said, oh, it was like three hours, which, you know, usually Whipple's like eight to 10 sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they moved pretty quick in there. But you also had, you know, your ovaries removed, you had the yeah. double. I mean, so that was like three major sur surgeries. So really that third surgery, mm -hmm. I, I just know, I like my mom went through a similar path, not with pancreatic cancer, with breast cancer, but then she's BRCA. So she had a double and then she decided to have a hysterectomy like as soon as she was done with her chemotherapy treatment post breast. And that was like major. So I think I, the, the hysterectomy was worse than the double mastectomy. So again, the question, you know, do you think like going through the, the, the cancer first originally with breast and then, you know, having, um, you know, your ovaries removed and everything and having that procedure done mm -hmm. prepared you for pancreatic. Yeah. yeah, I do. Because, um, I, I was so fortunate with the breast cancer diagnosis. It was so early on. Um, and then of course having a mastectomy every, and I didn't have any lymph node involvement and it was, um, strongly estrogen positive breast cancer. So I, I don't know a lot of about this, but I did go through this oncotype scoring um, at, based on the pathology from that breast cancer surgery. And the score that came back basically said, you know, we got all the cancer, you didn't have any lymph node involvement. Your benefit from chemo is not, um, the side effects are going to outweigh the benefit that you might get from chemo. So my oncologist then for breast cancer and I made the decision, no, no chemo. And I was like, I won the lottery. So I kind of felt like, 
you know, I recovered pretty well from the mastectomy. I had the direct implant um, procedure. So it was one surgery, um, no chemo. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm in pretty good health. So I recovered pretty well from that. Um, and then, you know, having the tubes and ovaries removed was a lap laparoscopic procedure, not to minimize it. It's, it's a big thing. Um, from the perspective of all the hormonal changes you go through and I'm, and I'm further on a maintenance drug, um, to suppress any estrogen that my body might produce. So that's a long-term thing, but I kind of felt like, um, and I had a lot going on at that time. I had started a, I was starting a new job at my own company, but like getting into a new position there. And my mom passed away right in that kind of in that time too. And it, um, it almost kind of felt like I skated right through it that I, that it didn't. And my, my kids, a couple of my daughters kind of said, mom, you need, cause the new job I was taking had a lot of travel and I, and I loved it and I was on the go and, um, and my kids were saying, I don't know if you've really processed this mom. Like you, you, uh, you don't have to be a superhero. You know, you went through a big thing, but you're kind of, you're kind of skating through it. I'm using the word skating through it. Um, so I think that when I got the diagnosis with pancreatic cancer, in some ways, I felt like this is a big wake up call. Like you, this is not going to be anything like what you went through. And good thing you had a little taste of it because this is going to be the fight of your life. I mean, I kind of felt like, um, now we're getting serious here because breast cancer by and large has a really good treatment outcome. It has compared to other cancers, your, you know, your survival rates are, they look different. Um, and I always kind of felt like I can handle this. Like we were going to get through this and I'm going to be fine. And pancreatic one was a whole different story. And it kind of really, um, it really woke me up. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, what you said, you know, is, is, is so powerful because, you know, all cancers, they're awful. Breast cancer, though, there's a high, high probability uh, for a lot of uh, men and women. Um, pancreatic cancer is a little bit different. Yeah. You know, so how did you handle that then? You know, were there certain strategies? I know you, you said you kind of used some strategies before to move forward, but I, I'd love to kind of hear, you know, from your perspective. So you have this wake up. So like, were there certain things in, in your mind mentally that you knew you needed to kind of prepare for? Um, I mean, the knowledge is power knowing that there's BRCA there. So that, I mean, the one thing we do know with, you know, the BRCA patients is that, you know, that the we have an outcome that's higher statistically than uh, people who are who are non BRCA because of a treatment protocol, uh, which is which is one of the benefits of I say benefits, but it, it is a positive of being uh, BRCA. Yes. So were there certain strategies that you used or things that you could share during that time when you had that kind of like I wouldn't say aha moment; it's more like oh yeah. shit moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think, and I mentioned, I mentioned this, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned a little bit ago about like this, this list of what's important to me, like really. And, and, and I work for, um, I work for an insurance disability insurance company, ironically. And, um, my boss, 
I had told her when I, shortly after I was diagnosed, but I was still, I was still able to, I felt like I could still work. I was just getting some tests still. And she, she just said to me, um, this is what we're here for. This is what we do. You need to go ahead and, and, um, take a leave. I had short-term and long-term disability and so fortunate for that. Um, so I have not had to work. Um, and so that kind of untethering from work really allowed me to focus on what's important to me, what really is important, you know, um, and a lot of it was, um, you know, you kind of think you start thinking, Oh, I wish we, you know, like, should we be taking trips? Of course you can't travel when you're in that point. You're, but you start thinking of all the things that you might've, my husband and I might've put off because we were focused on raising our blended family, um, for a while. And so that really wasn't practical. So I started thinking, you know what, everything I need is right in my own backyard. I want time with my family. I, we have a, um, my family has a, a very rustic main camp on a lake, uh, about two and a half hours north of here. Um, and on those alternate weekends where I was feeling good right before I would go in for a chemo treatment, we would go and be there for the weekend. And that's all I needed. And I kind of felt these moments of peace, um, throughout it all. And I started thinking, where, do, where do I find those, um, in this roller coaster of going through treatments and not knowing if they'll work and will I be really a candidate for surgery or is it growing? And I remember saying to my oncologist at one point, um, this is before I started chemo and we were just in and out of all these tests. And I said, we need to do something. I said, I feel like this pancreatic cancer is putting a point on the board every day and we're not putting any points up yet. <laughs> I don't like this. So we need to do something. And he said, Oh, we're, we're, we're putting points up. And he was just kind of, you know, calming me down a little bit, but I, I felt this, this, that was that early on feeling of feeling like I need to do something. And then I kind of settled into that treatment plan and said, one step at a time, one infusion at a time. And where do I find the moments where I can be with my kids? I can, we can go to the ocean and, and just sit and pack a little picnic and look at things that are bigger than the problems that you're dealing with. And uh, that helped me a lot. Um, and it's something that I think continues to stay with me where, as I would say before, it was the hamster wheel, you know, you kind of get into that um, routine of work and um, you don't stop to think about where am I finding those moments of having that feeling of peace and contentment um, that's not far away from, you don't have to go anywhere for it sometimes, you know, or you don't have to go far. And I think, um, you know, that's always my wish that people could feel like that without having to go through some serious help crisis, you know? It's powerful stuff, uh, Michelle. I, I think um, some of us may never get there, you know, um, but to, to be able to realize that 
And so for our audience listening at home, you know, we're not saying that you have to go through pancreatic cancer to get there, right? But it's an important lesson on how to get through life and through challenges and through some of the darkest of times to realize, you know, put that list together, what's really important, Mm -hmm. you know, because tomorrow's not guaranteed, um, but today is, you know, live in the moment and, and realize how special that is. And understanding, having that understanding is really a gift. It truly is. And I think, you know, you mentioned something even, you know, you know, people are going through COVID, right? Like we're all in this. So, you know, as awful as it may be, you know, you still have to have understanding. You still have to be able to appreciate those things in life that are really important, that really make yeah. a difference. Um, thank you for sharing that. That that was really, really powerful. I know sometimes it's not easy to to share those types of moments because, uh, you know, some people may feel vulnerable or, or just like, you know, um, but that's life. That's, you know, that, 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 and this is how we get through these challenges though, you know, and this is the power of, of sharing these stories. I know you've mentioned your family a bit, your husband. Um, I, I know you said early on, you know, because when you started the chemo, because of COVID, you know, you had to go in alone. Um, how's it been on your family? Uh, it's, it's been harder on them than I think I realized in the moment. Um, I think it's uh, my husband, uh, anybody who's a caretaker, God bless you. Uh, um, I think as somebody that is this person who's sick, you, you can, you understand what it is. You know how you feel. Um, and I always, always felt like even when I wasn't feeling well, I, I, I get through it. You know, I, I knew, you know how bad it is, but when you're a caretaker, you don't know that inherently and you're just worried and trying to find the right answer of like, did you try this medication or did, did you take that? Or um, seeing the person that you love lose weight and trying to help them find something to eat. Like it's so hard. And all, and all throughout that, just feeling that that baseline is you're scared you're going to lose your person. That's, that's um, as a caretaker, like, you know, my husband pretty much filled that role. Um, and my girls too, to some degree. Um, that's, that's, that's the heart of it right there. You're scared you're going to lose your person. Um, and I think that, wears on people. Um, and I think that, that war on my, uh, on my girls to my, my older two, it's funny, my (laughs) weird, um, weird story, but my, my oldest daughter, she's a scientist and, um, she also loves things that are old antique kind of things. And, uh, this was before I was diagnosed, but she had picked up this book. It was this old medical book about the pancreas of all things. Um, just because she thought it was a cool looking book and it sits on her shelf and she showed it one day. And we both kind of reflected on that after my diagnosis of like, how weird is it that she picked up that book? 
the irony. And she said, Mom, you want me to get rid of it? And I said, no, <laughs> it's kind of cool, you know. Um, but she has, and she has a friend who is in um, med school, will be, a, will be a doctor soon. Um, and that friend, I think, has been a huge anchor for my daughter because she's helped her to understand it and put things in perspective. And then my middle daughter is just my little caretaker. You know, she brought a big bag of things that I might need in chemo, you know, a blanket and a pillow and mints and all the stuff, you know, you might need for being comfortable. And, um, she came and stayed with me after surgery and made sure I had the foods I could eat and things like that. So caretaking, um, caretakers, people that love you, they have to find their own support system too. Um, whether it's each other or other caretakers, um, I think that's important. It is hard on the family. Um, but I told them even in the beginning, oh, those tearful conversations when you have to share that information, you know, with your family. Um, but I said, this is not it. This is not it. This is not how it's going to go. <laughs> um, I just felt it right in my heart of hearts. This was not going to be how things were going to end for me right now. You know, um, I had a lot of fight in me. Um, but ultimately I think actually the hardest conversation was with my dad, because again, I'm going to go back to you as a parent, you don't want to see your kids go through that. And, um, anything from a health perspective. I mean, he said multiple times, I wish I could be the one Let just let me take this. And that's not how it is. No, no, it's not. I, I, I thank you for being honest. Um, what you said about your daughters and your husband, uh, is, is really powerful, Michelle. I mean, I, I think, you know, any diagnosis of any cancer is a, is a punch to the gut, right? And the natural caregiver reactions like, oh my God, like, what do I do now? Right. But having the conversation, having reassurance, setting up lists, doing the things that you did, I mean, it, it, in the long run, it's the things that get you through it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you for sharing and being honest and, and allowing our audience to hear that side of, of the, the personal stuff in the family, because I think that's important. These are important conversations to have. And, and hopefully someone listening at home that, you know, may get diagnosed next week in a month, who knows, you know, we'll have those same conversations and, and be able to, to navigate through that journey in a very similar fashion. Yeah. And if, and if, you know, family dynamics can be tough um, sometimes. And then I think when there's illness introduced, it doesn't make the tough parts any easier, no. but so important to, you know, if, maybe if anybody could decide after hearing this to have, have that conversation with someone who's important in their lives, even if it's hard to have, because when it comes right down to it, that's, that's really all we have. We have, our family and our people who are like family, you know? Um, That's it. I got two questions left for you and they're both loaded questions. And then we are going to share uh, where our audience can connect with you if they'd like to. First question is 
what advice, and again, this is loaded, um, would you give someone who, again, just got that diagnosis today? Yeah. What's yeah. probably the, the biggest advice you'd give to them? Yeah, I, I think it's always tempting to look at what's, what's um, how long do I have to live? What, are, what do the statistics say? Um, I guess my advice would be approach it as you are, you are not a statistic. You are, you are one individual that needs to come up with the right treatment plan with your doctor and and you're on the team. (laughs) Like I said before, instead of feeling, it's really easy to feel victimized by this cancer because it's just so awful. Um, so I think my advice would be try to focus on just you being one, one patient that you're going to have your journey. Uh, I know for a lot of people, they don't have the options I, I had. Um, I mean, a couple of other groups, you know, I've, I've found being in these uh, Facebook groups for people who've had the Whipple or have, mm-hmm. who have pancreatic cancer. It's so helpful. Um, but you do see a lot. Sometimes I can't, I have to just decide Am I in the right mental space? Because some of the outcomes are pretty dismal. Um, it breaks my heart. Um, but even in that case, having having the mindset that you know you you're going to take this journey. It's your journey. It is a unique journey, um, and it will lead you somewhere. But being a part of that that plan, that treatment plan, I guess is my advice. Powerful. I've got another question that came up here before I ask my last and final question, but what was the feeling like bringing the bell, uh, that last chemotherapy treatment and it was right around Christmas. That had to be pretty freaking cool. It was, the adrenaline was going and (laughs) it was great. And I rang it loud. Let me tell you to the point (laughs) there was no little, little ding dinging of the bell it was going that's and, awesome uh, one of the nurses was taking a picture and uh she said well i'll take when i finished ringing she said i'll take one more just hold the loop she said you don't have to ring it don't <laughs> ring it that loud again and i'm thinking i want everybody to hear this this is a big yeah. deal uh, so i rang it loud and proud and um it was it was a great feeling um it was a great feeling and uh it was one of those times where I had to just remind myself, just today is a good day. I don't know what the future holds, but today is a good day. Powerful stuff. I love that. Last question. And of course, it's a loaded question. What is your definition of pancreatic cancer? Um, uh, I It's changed for me. Um, in the beginning, it's, it's a monster. I would define it as a monster, the type of monster where, you know, if you, if I, if you or anybody watches the scary movies, they're scarier when you can't see the monster. And that's how it felt. And this is an awful monster. I can't see it. And I, I'm scared. I'm scared of it. Um, and that's, that was how I felt in the beginning. Um, like I explained before I settled, <laughs> a little bit once I had a treatment plan and I knew I had a path forward and what I, how I would describe it now is it's a lens, a lens through which I see the world. 
and my life. And it has changed the way I see things. You know, it's almost like you put that, it's that lens or filter over how you see everything. Um, how I see my relationship with my husband, how I see my relationship with my children, my family, and how I think about my job and how I think about, you know, my health and what I need to do to take care of it and how I, you know, how I, how I show up with other people. So it's a lens for me now. That's so powerful. Michelle, if someone listening at home uh, is inspired by what they've heard today, and they like to reach out to connect with you, where's the best place for them to do that? I know we connected on social media. So as I said before, it's up to you to, to yeah. give out whatever information you'd like. Yeah. I've uh, found a pretty good support system on Twitter. Um, as a matter of fact, I've um, met a f quite a few people there um, that have been really helpful, but um, so I will give my Twitter handle. It's at Michelle and I'll spell it because it's one L Michelle, M I C H E L E underscore Miller, M I L L E R seven, number seven, the number seven at the end. Awesome. Michelle, uh, it has been an honor to share your journey here on the Project Purple podcast. Um, you know, you've been through uh, a lot in the last couple of years. And, and I always tell, people this that I meet on social media, you, you don't have to go out to social media and raise awareness, but you decide to do and share your journey. And, and it's so inspiring to meet complete strangers and then have this willingness and openness to share their stories. So uh, it means the world to me. Um, I'm also BRCA positive. Um, I found out a couple years mm -hmm. back. So your story uh, is near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah. and so is your daughter's now as her journey moves forward. But, you know, the good news, um, you know, there's a lot happening in this space and in, in particular the genetics piece. So I am confident, um, you know, in the next five years, we will see probably, uh, an early detection protocol for, you know, genetic mutation, high risk patients. Um, and also a lot, there's a lot going on. Uh, for you know, patients that are diagnosed that eventually get diagnosed with the disease, right? Um, and you're a testament to the success of that. Um, and there's a lot more happening. So, you know, we've invested millions of dollars already into that space uh, through various research initiatives. And I know there's a lot of people, you know, with with similar ambitions and similar goals. So, that's the positive, right? Like that's another positive. Like knowledge, as we said in this podcast, was such a positive, right? And now the fact that there is a large initiative to push for um, you know early detection within the BRCA uh, family. I, I say BRCA family, but the genetic mutations, right? And so we're excited for the next five years because I really do think like we are going to see some major, major, major advancements in the early detection space for pancreatic cancer related to the genetics piece. And, you know, people probably say, well, what about all the other people, you know, that don't have genetics? Well, guess what? What we learn on this side is easily adaptable to the other side, but understanding what we know is powerful, right? The more we know about genetic mutations, then we can take that information and, and bring it to the other side of the table for all cases. Um, 
but it's a lot easier to understand the BRCA because and and the genetic piece uh, because we we already have breast, ovarian, and all these other cancers that have figured it out. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can learn from that and move a lot faster. So I, I just. Uh, Again, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for helping to amplify and raise awareness within the pancreatic cancer community. It's inspiration to hear your story. And uh, I can't wait to follow your journey through social media and now through this relationship. Yeah, it's been, it's been, um, it's been wonderful, a wonderful experience for me to, um, to share. I think it's, it's healing in a way for me. Um, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have this, this platform to do that. Michelle, the honor has been mine. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm-hmm.